following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. That in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but at at Sacred City Church, we are... uh we're kind of into Jesus. Like we, we think he's a big deal, right? Our, our songs are about him. The scripture is about him. The sermon is all about him. And really the apex of our Sunday morning is not necessarily here in the preaching of the word. It's when we come to the Lord's table and we believe that Jesus is present among his people. That we get to commune with him. And that, that Jesus Christ himself it is part of us. And so at Sacred City Church, it's all about Jesus, but it doesn't end here on Sunday morning at 1130 when things wrap up here in the sanctuary. No, we believe that as Christians, that all of our life is meant to reflect the beauty and glory of Jesus, that our whole life is meant to be a worship service. You see, that's, that's actually what it means to be a Christian. It's not just that we're enthusiasts of Jesus and we come in and we, you know, sort of like a pep rally and we're just fans of Jesus. No, we, we believe that Jesus goes out with us. That we are actually follow, followers of Jesus. And language that we use here at Sacred City Church is that we're learners. We believe that's an identity. When, we, when you are saved by God, you become a learner, a disciple of Jesus. You're a student of Jesus. You become an imitator of him. That, not, not just informational things about Jesus in a learning sense. But these things get fleshed out in our life. Where we live lives that are fully devoted to Jesus in every avenue, in every domain, in every part of our life. And so as a church, we say that we together are learning how to increasingly live all of our life in worship to Jesus. In fact, that's why Christians are called Christians. It's because the entirety of our life is influenced by the person and work of Jesus, that we identify with Jesus Christ so much that we would be called Christians. Now, I I dare not presume that everyone here in this room is a Christian because being in church makes you no less a Christian or no more a Christian than standing in a garage makes you a car. There are some people in this room who aren't Christians and they're seeking out who is Jesus? What is this Christianity stuff? They're, they're maybe even skeptical about this. You know, we, we know a little bit about what, what Jesus claimed and who he claimed to be and what he claimed to do. And we're just curious, like, who is this Jesus? What's he about? Why would I devote my entire life to follow him? 
And if this is you, I just want to say, man, we are so glad you're here. Like, so glad. In fact, I don't think there's a better place for you to be and to ask some of these questions. Who is Jesus? Why does it matter? Why does, why does Jesus matter? Why does he have such an impact on people's life? And where we're at in the Apostles' Creed, it sets us up in a perfect way to consider this foundational Christian, this question of who is Jesus? We've been going through the Apostles' Creed, and we're only a couple weeks into this sermon series, but the Apostles' Creed is a short and concise summary of the entirety of the Christian faith, not necessarily the entirety, but, but the basics of the Christian faith that has been passed down throughout the centuries. And if you look at the creed, I mean, even if you look up at this banner here, I know you probably can't read it because the print's kind of small, but, but this, this middle section here, that whole piece is all about Jesus. And so in a sense, the Apostles' Creed is centered on Jesus. It, it's really a Christology. It tells us about the person of Jesus. It tells us about the nature of Jesus and the role of Jesus, what he has done. And so as we come to the second article of the Apostles' Creed, what we're doing today is we are breaking down the basic vocabulary of the Christian faith. Now, for some of us, this is going to be familiar. For for some of us, we, we have recited these words for years, decades even. That, that we even might even have the, the Apostles' Creed memorized and so we can sort of mindlessly recite the Apostles' Creed. It just rolls off the tip of our tongue. But if our profession about what we believe is on autopilot, then our lives will not reflect our profession. And you know what that means? It means that we become hypocrites. So what we're going to do today is we're going to dig into what it means when we say, it's basically a first stanza of the second article, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. We're going to say, what does that mean? What do those words mean? And as we figure out what it means, we're going to look and say, what does it actually look like to live this out? What does it look like to to flesh out this profession of faith? Now, as Scripture was read this morning, as Carrie read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, you may have noticed that there's some overlap, some very clear overlap between verse 9 of that passage and this stanza that we are looking at today. Verse 9 reads, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, all of those elements are right there. All the elements from the first sentence of the Apostles' Creed are right there in verse 9. It's as if the Apostles' Creed is basically a ripoff of Scripture, which it is. The Apostles' Creed teaches what Scripture teaches. And because the central focus of Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is on Jesus. It makes sense that the Apostles' Creed, the centrality of it, the, the main focus is on Jesus. Right? We, we say this, we, we look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus, 
while the New Testament speaks explicitly about Jesus. And so it makes sense that that our central focus of the Apostles' Creed would be Jesus. The Apostles' Creed is Christ-centered, which is the mark of the Christian faith. So let us start with square one here and ask, who is this Jesus that Christians say they believe in? First of all, is he real? Now, in the 18th century, a question emerged, uh, or even really a quest, to discover the historical Jesus. Like, okay, we know Jesus, you know, he's been documented in Scripture, but what sort of historical proof is there of Jesus? And so it sort of unfolded the quest for the historical Jesus. In many cases, in many scenarios, that quest is still being surfaced today. And the question is, is this Jesus figure of the Bible a legitimate person? Is is what he taught, uh, what's documented in Scripture real? Is he a real person or is he a myth? And for Christians, we look at Scriptures and we say, well, uh, of course, this is God's Word that, that speaks to us, that tells us that Jesus was the real incarnate Son of God. But there are also extra-biblical resources that validate this Christian belief. There are both Jewish and Greek uh, historians who have validated and said, yes, this, this Jesus Christ was a real figure in history. In fact, Alistair McGrath says, the historical evidence for Jesus' existence is sufficient to satisfy all but those who are determined to believe that he doesn't exist. Whatever the evidence may be. There is adequate support to say, yes, this Jesus is real. But the next question then is, if if Jesus is real, then then what's so special about this guy? Why is he unique? Why, Why do Christians say, I believe in Jesus Christ? And we actually learn a lot about who Jesus is and the uniqueness of Jesus just in his name. The, the name Jesus is an, is an Aramaic word or name that translates, if you were to use it in Hebrew, as Joshua, Yeshua. It, it's, a, it's a name that means God saves. Now, there have been countless numbers of young men who have been named Joshua as sort of a nod to the fact that God saved, that he will save his people. But this name is significant in how it was given to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 20, uh, 20, 20 and 21, an angel appears to Joseph, who is uh, betrothed to Mary, the Virgin Mary. And, and an angel comes to Joseph who will become Jesus' adoptive dad. Okay, and we'll kind of get more into what that all means next week. Um, and, and this angel tells Joseph to give Jesus this name. He says, you shall call, this, call his name Jesus, for he will save God's people from their sin. Now, I've named three kids to date. But not a single name that I've given my child has been appointed from heaven, right? For, some, for, for Mary and Joseph, it was kind of easy. They, they didn't have to flip through the baby books, didn't have to come up with a name. And angel said, hey, this is what you're going to name this child. 
And that, that means that carries some significance. It's this, this heavenly appointed name reveals that Jesus is the Savior. It's not just that God will save his people, but that God will save his people through this man. And so we see, knowing this about Jesus, that he is the Savior, it, it means that he's more than just a, a good teacher, a good Jewish teacher. He's more than just a, a revolutionary thought leader. It means that Jesus is the Christ. Now, contrary to popular belief, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Do you know that? Like, there, there's no mailbox in Nazareth that has Christ, Jesus on it. In fact, when you look at verse 4 of this passage in, in Corinthians, it flips the order and calls him Christ Jesus. What this shows us is that the Christ is a title. The word Christ is a Greek word. I know we're doing a lot of you know, language stuff here today. Christ is a Greek word that is translated in Hebrew as Messiah. Now, this is significant because in the beginning of John's gospel, as Jesus is being introduced, Andrew, one of the disciples, comes to his brother and says, we have found the Messiah. This is John 1, verse 40, 41. Andrew says, we have found the Messiah. And in parentheses, it says, which means the Christ. Now, Andrew is bridging two worlds here, and, and, and we'll see here in a moment why this is significant. He, he's saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And, and we hear simil, similar language to this like in sports, right? You, you have the chosen one. You get the star athlete who comes down. And they're going to lead the franchise to a Super Bowl. You know, it's the Antonio Brown of the Oakland Raiders. And you better get ready because football season's coming and all the Raiders injections are coming, guys. There's this chosen one, this idea that this person is appointed or is going to play a vital role in the ascension and success of an organization. That's kind of what the, there's kind of a parallel there to what we see in the Old Testament as the anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, we see that there is an appointing or anointing of key leaders who, who were set apart by God for a certain role. And this anointing, it was literally an anointing, not, not, a, not a proverbial one, but a literal anointing with oil. And it was a visual representation that as the oil poured down over the head, down the person's body, it was a, a representation of God's blessing resting upon that person and anointing them for a specific task. Now listen, you're not going to get anointed, anointed to take out the trash. You're not going to know to, to you know, change the oil in the car. These are specific, very special tasks that God was appointing these people for. And there were three main offices that were anointed for the service of God. And just really quickly, we see in the book of Exodus, Aaron, who is Moses' brother, is anointed, and his sons are anointed to serve as priests. Now, what do priests do? In the Old Testament, priests are mediators. They are people who help God's people connect to God through the offering of sacrifices. 
They're in service to God, connecting people to God. So that's the office of priest. Now, Samuel, in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, we see that, that Samuel anoints this young man named David to be the future king of Israel. He takes oil, pours it over his head, and he says that, that you are appointed and you will lead God's people as the king. And, and what does the king do? Well, the king serves as sort of the leader of God's people. They're, they're the ones who, who command, who guides, and, and the people who protect the nation. So we see God anointing kings, and then there's the prophets. We hear from the prophet Isaiah who, who says that he was anointed by God to proclaim God's word. And what do prophets do? They're, they're there to communicate on behalf of God. And so this, this sense where Jesus is the anointed one, it's not that, that Jesus is one of many anointed ones, as we have seen throughout history, that Jesus is the anointed one. That God has been promising his people that one day he would send a deliverer who would fulfill every office that needed to be fulfilled. That Jesus would be the king who would lead God's people in an inter- eternal kingdom. That Jesus would be the priest who would mediate between God and sinful humanity. He would be the prophet who would speak on behalf of God. And so now when, when, when Andrew, the disciples come and say, we have found the Messiah, we have found the anointed one. They're saying that Jesus, the one we've been waiting for. And listen, throughout Jewish history, the tension, the, the anticipation for this anointed one has been growing and growing and growing. It's been a promise that's been way back since the time of David. And finally, they see God is making good on his promise. That Jesus is here in the flesh. He is the anointed one. And J.I. Packer says that the title of Christ, when we call Jesus Christ, it expresses the claim that Jesus has fulfilled all three of these ministries. And Jesus didn't happen to fulfill these roles. Like it was some sort of coincidence that Jesus came and, oh, by the way, he kind of lines up here. No, no, these offices were created way back in the Old Testament to help us see the type of Savior, the type of person, the type of Christ that we needed specifically to point us to Jesus. And in fact... When we see Jesus as the fulfillment of these things, it's not easy to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything else in the Old Testament. That that Jesus is the true and better everything. I mean, if you follow through the storyline of the Old Testament, you, you can see how this unfolds, that Jesus is the true and better Adam. Who instead of compromising himself to sin and, and veering away from God, Jesus was faithful. Not only did he resist the temptation of the evil serpent, he crushed the head of the serpent. And instead of where Adam stole life and brought, brought death to the living, Jesus brings life to the dying. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who shows us what it looks like to trust God, who left his homeland, who left heaven to come down to earth, and by God's grace, he inherits the entire world. Jesus is the better Jonah. 
Now we know Jonah got swallowed up in the whale by the whale or the fish or whatever you want to say. It's three days in darkness, right? We see the parallel. But listen, Jesus was the better Jonah who went to the city who hated him. Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing that he would be crucified outside of the city, that he would be rejected, and he goes and he proclaims salvation so that many would be saved. Jesus is the better Moses who absorbs the wrath of God upon himself to free God's people from slavery and lead them to the promised land. See, when you see Jesus for who he is, that's how you read the scriptures. Right? The Old Testament, and Jesus actually told us on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, all of the prophets are pointing forward to me. Right? Jesus helps us go back and reinterpret everything in the Old Testament. So as Christians, we're not saying, oh, that Old Testament's old news, we don't need that. No, no, no. The, for Christians, the Old Testament is cherished. It's how we know Jesus is who he says he is because it's all pointing forward to him. Every story, I love this, in, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, I've read this Bible with my kids probably like 20 times in the last five years. It says every story whispers his name. You realize that? The story of Jesus doesn't be, be, begin in Matthew chapter one. The story of Jesus begins on page one of the Bible. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. What God is doing and how he's doing it through the person and work of Jesus. And so when we look at Jesus, we say, yes, he is the Christ. He's the one that all scripture points forward to. That Jesus is the true and better prophet, priest, and king. He is the fulfillment of scripture. He is the manifestation of God's promise to save his people from their sins. That is Jesus the Christ. He is our Savior. Now it's interesting though because there, there are places in the Old Testament and Isaiah 45 that says only God can save his people. Now with Moses, when he's leading the people out of Egyptian slavery into the promised land. It's not Moses who's saving God's people. It's God who's saving God's people. And so this question, like, if, if God is the only one who can save his people, how can he do this through Jesus? And, and Alistair McGrath says, unless Jesus is God, it is impossible for Jesus to save us. Now, this is why... This middle piece of the Apostles' Creed, that middle first stanza of the Apostles' Creed, is so important to say that Jesus is God's only Son. Verse 9 actually validates this too, that, that we were called into the fellowship of His Son. If you know John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. This is asserting that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we talked last week about how we are adopted into God's family, that we become, through the gospel, we become children of God. But Jesus is not an adopted son like we are, adopted son or daughter like we are. Jesus is begotten, not made. Jesus is the true son. And, and one of the creeds that, uh, that really speaks to this is the Nicene Creed. This is the one, there are really two major creeds in the Christian faith that help us sort of navigate some of these complexities. And in the Nicene Creed it says, 
We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Now, in some ways, this is like, this is category defying. Like, we don't have the right vocabulary to to accurately describe this relationship between God the Father and the Son and the fact that, that the Son has existed as long as the Father has. That He's not some created entity. And what this points to, especially here in the, the Nicene Creed, what we say, true God from true God, when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, it is saying that Jesus Christ himself is God. Now, this is scandalous. Really, when you think about it, this, this is not something that, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he is God, no big deal. No, no. This is actually the reason why Jesus was crucified. This this is the reason why the Jewish leaders in the first century had such a beef with Jesus. They thought they were, he was setting himself up as God to say that he is God's only son. This distinction of the nature of Jesus, true God from true God, shows us the nature of Jesus and it helps separate Orthodox Christianity from other similar Religions, specifically from Jehovah's Witness, from Mormons. Now, Mormons believe that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are three separate gods. The Christian faith would say they are one God in three persons. That's the Holy Trinity as God has revealed himself to us. But the Mormons believe that God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate gods. That God the Father was once a mortal who was elevated to the point of deity, and from that deity he, begot, or he, he created Jesus Christ the Son. Do you see the distinction here between the Christian faith and Mormonism? Jehovah's Witnesses similar, where they say that Jesus was a created being, that he was not necessarily divine, nor was he part of the Trinity. Now, if what Alistair McGrath said is right, that unless Jesus is God, it is impossible for Jesus to say us, then the gospel of Mormonism, the gospel of Jehovah's Witness is a false gospel. It's an incomplete gospel. It has a lot of similar pieces, a lot of similar language. And they might even say, yeah, we're Christians. We're under this big umbrella of Christianity. And, And they may even say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. But what they mean by that is really fuzzy and it doesn't line up with the Orthodox faith. This is why creeds are so helpful. It clarifies what is orthodoxy. And and it doesn't set up lines to to say, hey, we're against these people. Uh Uh-uh. No, no, no. The the lines of orthodoxy are set up as parameters. Say, look, this is a wide net. As Baptists, as Presbyterians, as Lutherans, as non-denominational people, we adhere to this confession. We are Christians belonging to the one body of Christ. But here's the deal with those people who are outside of the line, who are on the other outside of the circle of orthodoxy. It doesn't say, oh, we need to push them away. No, no, no. What it does is say, hey, we are on mission to these people. See, these people need to hear the good news that the only way they can find salvation is if Jesus Christ is the one son of God. 
So if you know Jehovah's Witnesses, if you know Mormons, you ought to have the disposition of, listen, we're not, we're not lining up here with our profession. Man, I love you, and I would love to see you come to know who the real Jesus is. Now, since Jesus is God, then it makes sense to call him Lord. Verse 9, back to verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. If you go back to the Old Testament, the, the, the name, the title Lord is used to acknowledge God more than any other word throughout the Old Testament. Over 1,200 times. And the word Lord is another word that is loaded with meaning. And it has huge implications on our lives. Because the word Lord indicates, it's it's a term of submission. It's to say that I am under this person's authority. Which is fitting because when Jesus is resurrected and he's commissioning his disciples in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That means that Jesus is the ultimate power. Jesus is the ultimate authority. That Jesus is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. In fact, the earliest recorded creed that Christians had was this simple statement, that Jesus is Lord. And listen, this is, a, is not something that we just sort of sweep under the rug. This is a profound statement because in the first century, the common mantra was Caesar is Lord. It's like we're here to fall under Caesar. We're here to, to do what Caesar asks us to do. We fall in line under Caesar. But here, this, as we talked about last week, this, the Christian rebellion... They say, no, no, no. There is an authority above the emperor. That, that we are more devoted to Jesus than anything else. So, to political party, to our family, to our jobs, to whatever it may be that's crying for our country, whatever it is that's calling for our allegiance, we are devoted to Jesus, the ultimate authority. That it's Jesus who directs us, who leads us and shows us the way to life. That Jesus rules us. And it's his authority that we submit to. This is what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord. Now listen, I've done a lot of unpacking of what this means in sort of a, a, a cosmic, sort of 30,000 foot view. But what does it mean when this starts to flesh itself out in our daily life? What does it mean for you and me to say Jesus is Lord and to actually mean that, to have that backed up by the way we live your life? Now listen, here's the first thing it means. If Jesus is Lord, that means you are not. Pretty simple, right? Like, like there's, there's only one driver's seat in your car. That, that Jesus is Lord, I am not. Now, this is both a confrontational statement, but it's also deeply comforting when you really understand it. It's kind of like a jolt and an embrace at the same time. It's confrontational because Jesus is claiming the driver's seat of our life. That that all of our life is lived in submission to not just like the spiritual things, not just the moral pieces, 
But all of our life is devoted to Jesus. He gets the driver's seat and there's no co-piloting. It's not like we're trading on and off. Like, Jesus, you take this 30-minute stint. I'll take the next 30-minute stint. And we'll just kind of split it up like that. There's no co-piloting in the Christian faith because Jesus is Lord. When you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, you're saying, I am sliding over to let Jesus take the wheel. That's cheesy. I shouldn't have said that. I'm going to take a drink and collect my thoughts. <laughs> the Christian language for this, like the biblical language, is that you take up your cross. There's a sense where you die to yourself, your own preferences. Your own ideas of what it means to live. your, Your own convictions of, it's my life, I want to do it my way. It's giving the reins over to Jesus and not in despondency, but in confidence saying, Jesus, take my life, do with it what you will. It is your will, not mine, that I want to see done. Now, when it's put this starkly, when it's this blunt, you know, I think that there's a tendency to look at this and say, you know what, Jesus is the Lord, no thank you. I, I like that stuff about Jesus, my Savior, my Rescuer, save me from my sins, I love that. But this Lord stuff, Jesus is my Lord, that seems invasive. Right? After all, it's, it's my life. Now, this narrative is so strong in our culture. The, the culture is obsessed with the idea of autonomy. And it's not just a new invention. This has been sort of like, I mean, you can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree that they shouldn't have. It's based in this old mantra that I am the captain of the ship. I am the master of my own fate. Just let me, let me be me. Let me do me. Let me be my own Lord. Let me, let me assert myself in my own life as what is most important. Let me do what feels right. But Jesus' lordship confronts that. Jesus' lordship recognizes that it's his complete authority, it's his complete rule, his complete submission of my life to him. In fact, Abraham Kuyper says that there's not one square inch in all of creation that the Lord Jesus does not put his finger on it and say, Mine means our whole lives are his. Now, the rubber hits the road on this when Jesus puts his finger on the things that you like most. Right? When Jesus puts his finger on your time. Oh, it's my time. I've worked so hard. I get some free time. I want to spend it how I want to do it. It's like, well, no, Jesus is claiming that. That's Jesus' time. You're on borrowed time, actually. The time you have isn't really your own. What about your... Sexuality, well, it's, it's my body. I can do with it whatever I want. I, can, I don't have to be married. I, I can live with whoever I want. Who is Jesus to impose himself on me like that? Right, we feel that and we want to push back. What about your money? When you realize that all you have is under the, the authority of Jesus, under the rule of Jesus, your money is not your own. It's not. How did you earn that money? 
Oh, I worked hard for it. Sure you did. How did you have the energy to work for it? How do you have the physical capacity to work for it? How do you have the mental capacity to work for it? Who do you think gave it to you? It's God's money. It's Jesus' money. You're just on borrowed money too. Borrowed time, borrowed money. What about the things you put into your body? I, I mean, this could be like substances, but also like the content you intake, right? What you watch on TV. And Paul says, like, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. When Jesus is Lord, right? He's claiming domain on the intake, too. What about the the priorities in your life? Oh, man, I really, you know, family time is super important. I just got to protect that. Work time, super important. I got to make a living. I got to keep growing forward. And that's true. Yeah, love your family well. I mean, that's part of living out the Christian life. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, be good fathers. But, but when that stuff overshadows the graces that God gives us of, of living in community, of having a robust uh, relationship with brothers and sisters in the faith, of living life in community and on mission together, Jesus is claiming that that's mine. Your life is mine. Your Sunday mornings are mine. And we fight this. We do. I, I, I fight this. It's not just you. Maybe you're feeling convicted. I don't know. But, but we all fight this. Because like, the default is, you know, I like the idea of Jesus as my Savior, but I don't want him to get too pushy with me. I don't want him to be claiming all of the pieces of my life. I don't necessarily want him to be my Lord. And it's in this soil of dysfunction that American Christianity is rooted in. Do you realize that? Like the general state of Christian evangel evangelism. No, somebody help me. Christian evangelicalism. There we go. Is this idea that I can have my life the way I want it, and Jesus is this like side piece that I can live the way that I want and just sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus and, and then that's, you know, that's what the Christian look, life looks like. But if you understand Scripture, if you understand the fact that, that Jesus Christ is Lord, you understand that this is unbiblical. Like, in a lot of ways, the American church is unbiblical unless we're actually living like Jesus is the Lord and Christ of our lives. John Frame says, you cannot embrace Jesus as Savior without embracing him as Lord. In other words, there is no good news for you that your sins are forgiven, that you've been saved from your sin until you are able to surrender to Jesus as Lord. That you can say, yeah, Jesus is my Savior and he's my Lord. In fact, that's, that's one of the first things that, that Peter announced in the book of Acts. That, Jesus, that God has set Jesus up as Lord and as Christ, as King and as Savior. And the Christian life is increasingly submitting and surrendering our lives to Jesus. Because here's the thing, when you come to faith, you, you don't do that perfectly. Nobody does it perfectly. You'd be walking with the Lord for 50, 60, 70 years. There's still parts of your life that, that in some sense are withheld from Jesus. And so the Christian life is giving over our lives daily and surrendering to Jesus. 
And in that sense, as we're surrendered to Jesus, we are deployed to serve him. Now, that, that's the confrontation of the peace. I hope maybe you're confronted. But there's also comfort. There's so much comfort in this reality of having Jesus as Lord. And as I got thinking about it, I don't think there's any place that's, that better sums it up than, than the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. And then the question goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? You want to know what the answer is? The answer is, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Amen? Amen. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me. Uh, assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Oh, what a deep comfort. Do you see the comfort in this, in this answer? He, he, it starts out, look, look at what, yeah, Jesus is my Lord. I'm not my own, but belong completely to Jesus. But look at what Jesus has done. He has paid for your sins with his own blood. Jesus is the true and better priest who doesn't just lay down a sacrifice on the altar and cut it and, and slit its throat and let that be the sacrifice. No, Jesus is the sacrifice who himself gets on the altar. That it's his own blood that pardons you from your sin. He's the priest who makes us right with God forever. That from now on there's no more need for sacrifices. That Jesus was sufficient He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And it says, he has set me free. Now, Jesus is the king who frees us from the tyranny of the devil. He is the defender and protector and conqueror. Now, th this is the difference between knowing Jesus as king and, and sort of separating him from the other worldly, earthly kings that we might know. An earthly king comes and asserts his will by force and power. Jesus is the king who comes not to assert his power, but to win us over through his service. Jesus is the servant king who comes and he assumes the lowliest position. Jesus is the servant king who, who on the night that he was betrayed, he got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet, doing something that only the, the lowest of servants would do. And in this, we see that, 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 that Jesus is not just a king that's domineering, but he's a king who comes for our good. He comes to preserve us and protect us and to lead us. In verse 8 of 1 Corinthians, he says that he sustains us to flourish. That's the type of king Jesus is. He is a true and better king that Israel never had. He's a king of our lives. And for the Christian, the lordship, the kingship of Jesus isn't this rigid, oppressive claim. No, this is something we celebrate because we see Jesus is a good king. 
There's a, a, a modern hymn called Christ Alone. And, and in this song we sing, Till He returns, till Jesus returns or calls me home, Jesus commands my destiny. It's something we celebrate. And the good news is, is inside of this because who here really knows how to navigate life with all its complexities? Who here really knows what you're doing? Everybody's faking it till you make it. I saw a sign or I saw a social media picture the other day. It says, um, life is like chess. I don't know how to play chess. See, in steps Jesus, who, by the way, is the designer and originator of life, who knows how life works best. And he said, hey, I'm going to give you command. I'm going to give you command. I'm going to guide you to life. Because when we do life our own way, it only compounds the brokenness. It only perpetuates this downward spiral of the fall. But when we step in and we see what Jesus has done and how he's trying to lead us to greener pastures, right? He he is the true and better shepherd king of, of Psalm 23. That Jesus enriches our life by the way he leads us. And finally, Jesus is the prophet who not only speaks the words of eternal life, Jesus himself is the word of eternal life. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Nobody gets to that enriched life except through him. And when you see what Jesus has done... We're willing, we're ready, just like uh, the Heidelberg Catechism said. He makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And this is not moralism. There's a difference between Christianity and moralism. Moralism says, obey and you'll be saved. Christianity says, you have been saved, therefore obey. Because you've been loved, you listen to the voice of the Father. Because Jesus showed us his love first. He laid down his whole life for us. How can we not reciprocate with a love that gives our own lives in response? I know I'm coming up on time. Um, I think I can't read that clock from here. But I, I have one last, one last thing that I want to lay before you. I believe this is a key evidence of Jesus' lordship in our life. And it's this question of, are you living like a missionary? See, if Jesus' lordship is being made evident in your life, you enter into the workplace, you enter in your neighborhood, you enter into your family, your friend circles as a missionary, as an ambassador for Jesus. And here's why. Because in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, it's directly connected to the mission of God moving forward, of reaching more people, of sharing the good news that Jesus is the better prophet, priest, and king. This commission of making disciples is directly correlated to Jesus' authority, that we are sharing the gospel, that we're sharing the good news. That we're opening up our homes to be hospitable and welcoming of the outsider. That we're making invites. It's, it doesn't have to be complex. You want to come to church with me? You want to step into a mission community? We've got some dudes from church that are hanging out. You want to come along? Some ladies are doing a craft night. You want to, you want to scope it out? It doesn't have to be anything profound, but that's what a missionary impulse, that's what, that's what the lordship of Jesus taking place in our lives as missionary comes out as we're seeking to connect people to Jesus Christ. 
And we do this, we seek out the lost because Jesus himself came to seek out the lost. By the way, at one time that was you. Amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Amazing grace is that God is still finding people. God is still seeking people. He's still claiming people as mine, as the Messiah, as the Christ. Now, I have a deep burden. I have a very deep burden that God has just been intensifying in the last couple weeks to see more people in our city enriched by Jesus in every way. It's, it's like 1 Corinthians 4 here. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him. I have a deep desire that God's grace would meet the people in our lives that we love in a non-ignorable way, that they would see God and see Jesus and say, that is my Savior. He meets this deep longing that I have in my heart. He, he elevates me above the muck and mire of my own brokenness. He empowers me to live a God-centered life. My desire is to see more and more of our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors come to the Lord's table with us every Sunday. And I'm not, I don't even care. I don't even care if they come to this church. I want to see people reach for Jesus. Knowing that they come to the Lord's table, and what we're doing in the Lord's table when we come forward, we're, we're saying, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. He has saved me from his sins. His body was broken. His blood was shed to save me from these things. But he's also, the Spirit of God is indwelling in me, empowering me to be desirous, to be heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him as my Lord. That's what we're doing when we come to the Lord's table. And I have a deep desire that more and more people would proclaim with us that Jesus Christ is their personal Lord, that he is their Christ, that Jesus is Savior and King. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that your story is so beautifully written. You did not leave us without a Savior. You did not leave us uh, with these human priests and kings and prophets to kind of be a placeholder like they were in the Old Testament, but you've given us Christ. You've given us Jesus, the true and better prophet, priest, and king who, who meets our deepest needs, who connects us to you, who gives us new life, who forgives us, and who sends us out on mission so that your glory would be known from the ends of the earth. God, we desire to glorify you. We desire to flesh out this profession. Would, you, would your spirit be at work in our hearts to make this come about? We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. 